So I became the West Coast PA of MTV Sports and my own personal assistant just to make the extra 300 bucks a week to pay rent. If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. Because it'll teach you what my dad always taught me, that failure is just opportunity in disguise. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome back to 10,000 Knows. I had the pleasure of sitting down with actor, author, TV host, Dan Cortez. Many of you will remember Dan as one of MTV's first video hosts back in the 90s, but he has done so many things and has such a great sense of humor and warmth. I just really loved speaking to him. He's got a book that is just now coming out in June of 2020 titled Step Off, My Journey from Mimbo to Manhood. Don't worry, you're going to hear all about it. It is funny and full of lessons. But before that, I'd love to tell you about our sponsor, Poopery, which comes in handy when you are full of something else. You know what that is. All you have to do when you got to go, you simply spray the bowl before you go. A layer of essential oils traps bathroom odor before it begins. It is guaranteed. It's available in a variety of scents and sizes so that every bathroom is stocked. They've also got this great hand sanitizer. Uh, It's a moisturizing blend of coconut and lavender that kills 99.9% of germs in 15 seconds. And, um, They are donating 10% of their profits to Texas charities, and additional quantities are being donated to medical professionals in need. All you have to do as a 10,000 Nose listener is use the code DELNEGRO15 for 15% off your order of $25 or more at poopery.com. When you're at checkout, again, that is DELNEGRO15. All right, no more bathroom talk. Here's what I want you thinking about while you listen today. I always talk about the fact that nothing is overnight. Dan's success at MTV, at the time, I didn't know him. He was just a dude on TV, and I thought, oh, come on, who is this guy? He got plucked, and he's got this cool job, traveling the world, being himself, hanging with cool people. Well, listen to how he got there, the things he did to set himself up and give himself that opportunity. Meantime, I'd like to remind you, if you haven't already, to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That really helps the show. We appreciate it. But for now, all you've got to do is listen to me rapping with Dan Cortez. You played backup QB, ironically, at UNC, where yes. Jordan went, UNC Chapel yeah. Hill. Um, so you you grew up outside of Pittsburgh. Was yeah. your... Was your high school football kind of like Tom Cruise and all the right moves? Were you in like a steel town, really tough? What was your upbringing like? We were, um, I grew up about 20 minutes west of downtown. Uh, My dad, my upbringing was, my dad was an Italian immigrant, uh, came over with his parents when he was six. Um, Like great, like I would always ask him, well, who taught you English? He's like, they put me in school. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, sat in the back of the classroom. Didn't understand a word of English, but that's how. All right, you're in first grade, whatever. You go sit there and figure it out. Because uh, his parents didn't speak it. Um, and he met my mother in college. They, and my dad played football and ended up getting a, a scholarship to go to college. He was the first person in his family to, to go to college. So he went to a small uh, NAIA school 
in Northwest Pennsylvania called Westminster. And, um, and they were like, they went undefeated for four straight years, won a national championship. For, so like when you'd go back to this tiny little school with my dad, it was like walking back with Jordan. It was like, because he played, he was tight end and then also defensive end, no face masks. You look at the pictures and it's like all these guys with noses like this, just kind of hard ass guys. Um, but I was fortunate enough. Um, I was the youngest of four. And um, I took All my boys parents, or, or uh, boys and two, girls, a boy, then a girl, then a brother. So three boys and uh, a girl. And and my girl, or my sister was probably the toughest one of all, yeah. all four of us. Um, but I was I took my parents on this trip to Italy because my dad had never been back. So I thought one year as a Christmas gift, he had a, he was the youngest of seven, had his oldest sister who he'd never met still lived back there because she was married and had kids before he was even born. So I thought, what a great thing. You're going to meet your sister. And I said, my dad really never drank, neither did my mom. So we're back doing the full on tourist thing first. We're going Rome, Florence, Venice. And then down to, uh, he lived in the Castro, which was like the toe of the boot. And um, so one day we were out at lunch and, you know, you're in Italy for lunch. They just go, you want red or white? And because they just bring out house pictures of the house wine. So my dad had had a couple glasses of wine. So I said, you know, I'm just curious, like everybody in the family is either Vinny, Joe, Vin, you know, Tony. It's like all these Italian names. Where did like Dan, like Daniel, where did that, where'd that come from? And my dad had had a couple and he goes, I'll be honest. I didn't know if you were mine. Uh, he goes, so I let your mother name you. And he just starts laughing. And I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> Do you know how much I paid for this trip? What? Um, it's funny too, because I mean, other than the fact that I look like spit right out of his mouth, I was like, what? But they weren't, cause my, uh, older sibling next to me is five years older than me. So they weren't expecting another child. So, um, I was lucky enough to be, I was the baby. So I was spoiled. And, but when I got to high school, my dad was my high school principal. And I wrote about this in my book. There's a first day of high school, um, because my mother worked as well. My dad would get up in the morning to help her out, wake me up, and then, you know, go make my lunch for school and make me some toast for breakfast. Had peanut butter toast every day before school from, like, kindergarten to grade 12. Two slices of peanut butter toast, which helped the, the complexion in, in puberty. But um, <laughs> so he told me first day of high school, he goes, hey, I just told me he loved me. And he goes, I just want to let you know, we, we don't have any problems at school. We don't have any problems at home. Capiche? And I was like, Yes, sir. Okay. And that was basically he's throwing the gauntlet down. Don't, don't screw up because you're going to have to pay for it when you come home. So people, when I did MTV, people were like, oh, I'm sure you were crazy in high school. You, I was like on a roll, never had detention, played two sports, never got in trouble. And they were like, really? Why? And I was like, didn't want to suffer the consequences. And, and truthfully, in my defense, a little bit, um, having seen my other siblings go through it, I was smart enough at that age to realize that I respected my dad. And if he couldn't control his own kid, like how does he expect to be respected by the other parents to control theirs? So I knew like, I didn't want my dad, you know, getting trash talk. So it was like, if I'm good, then it's easier for him to discipline other kids. And yeah. um, so, but it was our high school football team wasn't really that good. Uh, we were a lot of hard-nosed kids, um, but we also played teams like Aliquippa, where you've got 
Uh, Aliquippa, I think it's been since 1992, has had a starter on an NFL roster every year. So that was a hardcore steel town. Beaver Falls was another one that had like division one players at every position. And these guys would just, I was quarterback. I, my junior year, we were pretty good. We had won the division my sophomore year, but I didn't start. And we still had some of those players left over. But my senior year, my entire offensive line, it was like all sophomore kids. Uh, my entire offensive line <laughs> was gone and I would legit drop back and run for my life. It was like these guys, because the thing was too, I grew up, I'd come under center. This was my junior year. And I would talk smack to the linebackers. I'd see them, you know, read the defense back in whatever, 1986. But I would talk trash because I knew. And you I would talk protected. like, I would talk like bad smack too. I would talk this like cerebral, like nice teeth. Yeah. yeah. Or, and just to get guys going like, what? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> it wasn't real, like in depth, in depth trash talking. But so my senior year, these, I, I was hurt by, uh, I think it was the sixth game of the year. I was throwing a pass and a guy's hand came back and broke my thumb. So I didn't play the last five, <laughs> five games of the year. So did but, you, so after that senior year, what did you do? Did you walk on at UNC? I did. What happened was, uh, and it was really, uh, again, it's one of, uh, I sound like a broken record. Hey, it's in my book, but I wrote, cause I felt this was necessary to write about my oldest brother, whose name is Jim. Um, great guy likes to have fun with people, but a homebody through and through. He's 10 years older than me decides one night when he was in his mid twenties, had a friend call him and say, Hey, go to this place, Mike's place, which was a local hole in the wall bar that my friend, my friend's dad owned. Um, and it's like pizza and beers is basically what it was. Come to Mike's place. We're meeting some people for drinks, but nah, he didn't want to go to ends up going first and only time he had ever been there. And hasn't been back since. And sees a friend of his from high school. He was a family friend. This guy by the name of Phil Zacharias, who, when he was in high school, my dad was a football coach at our high school as well. Um, Phil's like, hey, how's the family doing? How's your dad doing? My brother tells me, hey, everybody's doing great. Actually, Dan is the quarterback the high school. He's doing pretty well. And um, so Phil's like, oh, that's crazy. Like, I, I'm, a, I'm a graduate assistant at the University of North Carolina. I'm coaching down there. He said, why don't you have him send some tape to our quarterback coach, Randy Walker? So my brother comes home, tells me that. Never really thought anything else about it, but other than I'm like, okay, let's put together like a really nice tape to send to Carolina. In my wildest dreams, I thought like, maybe I'm hoping this, you know, 17 year old kid, I hope I get a letter back just with their letterhead on it. Cause I'm going to put it up and be like Carolina. Yeah. yeah. Cause I was recruited <laughs> like Pitt was recruiting me and I was kind of set to go to Annapolis of all the places. Um, so to play football. Um, but I got a letter back from Randy Walker, the coach, the quarterback coach who then became Northwestern's uh, head football coach. Um, saying, hey, would you, would you consider coming to Carolina, come for a visit? And then we had talked out of scholarships, but would you consider walking on? We want you on the team. Would you consider it? It was always my dream to go to Carolina, not to play football, but because of Jordan, okay. go there and play basketball. I was nowhere near good enough to even play intramurals at Carolina basketball. Yeah. But I was like, dream come true. Like, that's, that's my dream school to go to. So went and had the visit and um, 
met with all the coaches and they were like, we want you. So that fall, uh, I was on the squad. So it was, um, you play all four years. I, I hurt my back at the end of my second year, hurt my back fall ways. We were maxing out on different lifts. Just, okay. We're ending the season. Here's where we're squatting. My back gave out. I had three compressed discs. Then at that point, our coach who recruited me, Dick Crum was the head coach, got fired. And they brought in Mac Brown, who is now back there now. And Mac came in at the time and uh, basically, I, I would always say, like, he's a used car salesman, but he's a really good one. When he came in, he knew exactly what he was doing. He played to the alumni. He played to the alumni that were the boosters that had all the cash, but then also was honest with the team and said, basically, like, these five really good guys on offense are going to play. These five really good guys on defense. Uh, everybody else, I'm bringing in junior college transfers and freshmen. You guys are more than welcome to stay on the squad. But here's how I'm going to build the program. So there was kind of a mass exodus at that yeah. point. And um, I think there was close to like 30 guys that quit over the course of a month and a half. But I just thought at that point, I was I hurt my back. They were going to let me complete my rehab on my back. Um, but I also, you know, you come to the conclusion too, of like, I'm not good enough to play pro. Yeah. And I also don't want to be a tackling dummy. And I also, deep down inside, if I had a choice between, hey, you could be an actor or you can be a quarterback, I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to be on camera. When did you know that? What, was that? Fifth you know, grade. Fifth grade, really? Fifth grade. The, um, there was a thing that happened. There was a play that we did in fifth grade where there was a, uh, it was like a mashup that I said it's uh, of Alice in Wonderland and then all these other historical characters. And I said, obviously they didn't drug test teachers in the Pittsburgh public school system in, in fifth grade, 1975 or whatever. Um, but so there was a, I wanted to be one of the lead characters and the, our teacher told me, she's like, no, because there's some really talented kids that are going to get the lead characters. But she had seen me get this. I wore like my mother was a seamstress. And had made a brown vest that I wore with a tie to a Christmas event. And she had seen me wear the brown vest. So she goes, I'm creating a character just for you called the Brown Rabbit. And I had one line that I would come in. It was with uh, uh, the White Rabbit and I think Alice where I like walk in from stage left with a, a tray of teacups, deliver tea, say, here's your tea was my line. They say, thank you. And I was supposed to walk off. So we rehearsed it, you know, like all week and went really well. And uh, then the night that we shot it in front of all, or not shot it, but did the play in front of all the parents. I don't know why or where it came from. They were like, brown rabbit, get out there. Because I was, you know, missed my cue or whatever. So I go walking out there with my, you know, fake teacups and everything. Hand out the tea. Here's your tea. Alice says, thank you. And I just took a cup myself and downed like that much water out of it. And I go, ah, now that's some good eating. <laughs> and then I started walking off the stage and Miss Wilson was my teacher. Who was the one that said, you're going to be the brown rabbit. And she was not, she was a nice woman, but not the nicest to the kid. She was kind of a disciplinarian and she's just like staring a hole through me. And I thought, cause you used to get the paddle. And I'm like, oh man, going to get the paddle going to get the paddle. And as I'm walking off stage, I said, it's like slow motion. The place erupted 
with laughter and people like just cracked up. And even after I got off the stage, people were still laughing. So as I walk past her, she backhands me on my butt and just kind of smirks and smiles. And I kept walking. And I said, at that moment, I knew I wanted that rush, but I said, I wanted that, that rush of not just doing it, but I want to walk that fine line in between getting a laugh and getting a paddle. Because yeah. if you don't go for it, yeah. why, why be vanilla and just go right down the boat? So that, like, at that moment, I was just like, that's what I want to do, you know? And um, so then throughout high school, <laughs> excuse me, I was in other, like, chorus plays and things like that where I didn't have to sing solos, thank God. Did you play um, any instruments or anything like that? or uh... You know, in grade school, when I grew up, you used to have to play in, in like elementary school, they, you had to pick an instrument to play, which was great. And I always wanted to play the drums, always wanted to play the drums. And even told my parents, want to play the drums. And I remember my dad saying, no, you make too much noise as it is. I'm not, not going to get drums. And my dad came home one day with a saxophone when I had to decide what instrument I was going to play. And he's like, I got you a saxophone. And I'm like, I don't want to play the saxophone. This is like fourth grade. Excuse me. I don't want to play the saxophone. And he said, well, I always wanted to play the saxophone. So I think it would be great for you to learn. Looking back, I've had the conversation with him just saying, do you realize how much more noise I made practicing the saxophone in the basement than I did? Because back in the day, you didn't get drums. You got that little pad and drumsticks and you practice on that. I said, so I played the saxophone for up until ninth grade. Uh, So I played for like five years, rather um, C plus level. Yeah. I was I was the first chair in our junior high band in my very last year because the band the band instructor said we need a baritone sax would you consider switching to baritone we have one you know you don't have to buy one use it and I said why he said we don't have one in the band and you'd be the only one so you'd be first chair so I switched which was great because baritone sax you basically had to play like one note for four beats yeah and then <laughs> It was like playing the bass. That's, so yeah, that was the, that was the beginning and end of it. But. but then, but then throughout, like in high school, did you do plays while also playing sports? Cause you played what football, basketball, baseball, football, basketball. I quit baseball for, and that was my best sport. Um, but I quit baseball going into my sophomore year just because I, uh, maybe I had ADD. I would just get so bored by it. And I mean, I was on all-star teams, played really well, but I just, it was just so boring to me. And here's how my best friend growing up was an excellent player. His name was Tom Zuba, great baseball player, went to Yale and became one of their all-time leading. He was my wide receiver on my high school football team, but was one of Yale's all-time leading receivers. Um, But a very cerebral dude, like, and it was ironic that we would be best friends because I was not at the time. And (laughs) But he would just, we'd go out, you know, and have beers. And he would just say, five minutes, first five minutes of that first beer. I want to talk about politics and religion. And then we can talk about stuff you want to after that. Okay, great. So I'd have to listen to his theories on stuff. But um, I played third base and Tom played shortstop. And the only way I could entertain myself was I would talk trash to him at shortstop the whole time because he took it so serious. And had, you know, baseball players would get their rituals. So he'd have to like kick the dirt four times and hit his glove and then get set. And I would honestly, I would tell him, I hope 
you have an heir at some point in the game. Because then I would just talk to him the whole time. Your mom's here. She saw that. Your grandma's here too. I can't believe she, and he would, he would never look at me. Just be like, shut up, shut up. Stop talking to me. So I would entertain myself just by talking to him. Cause I said, maybe once every one, two innings, you get a ball hit to you, you know? And it's yeah. like, okay, well you get a ball hit to you. Great. I, and then every once, every two, three innings, you'd get the bat. I was like, there's just not enough, not enough going on. I so, had the same transition. I mean, I, cause I played football, basketball, baseball. And didn't then you play lacrosse from, though? Uh, well, yeah. And that's what I was about to say in sixth grade to seventh grade, I loved baseball, but then I kind of got actually a bunch of our friends. We all shifted over seventh grade was the first year you were allowed to play. You know, you, we had availability to play lacrosse, started playing that. So then it was football, basketball, lacrosse. And then I, ended up stopping basketball after freshman year so I could go skiing over the winter. So it was just football and lacrosse and then <laughs> lacrosse in college. So it was a yeah. similar, you know, hearing your stories and even hearing, you know, we've both now written a book, yours is about to come out, but I, I found myself writing a lot of stories about my, the lessons I learned in sports, yeah. it, which I didn't really plan. I didn't really think if you asked me beforehand, are you going to tell stories from sports? I wouldn't have said yes, but what you realize, and I think holds true for you, is the life lessons you get from playing sports yeah. that apply to the rest of your life. I'm interested in you go to you, so you stop playing, uh, you stop playing football after I guess that sophomore year, sophomore, or going into junior year, year which is similar because yeah. I stopped playing lacrosse after fall ball of junior year, and I did a play at at Boston College that spring. Yeah. Um, so we're on like a similar trajectory. What did you like? Did you at that point know, okay, I'm going to pursue this. This is going to be my thing. Did you, did you go public with it or was it still something you held close to the vest? Did you do anything at North Carolina with acting or? Yeah, I, um, I didn't hold a close vest even in high school. It's funny. I had a friend of mine, you know how they make you do these things in high school. Where are you going to be in 20 years for the seniors? And then you write it down. And he, I totally forgot about it. And he sent it to me not too long ago. Just saying, like, I said I'd be, have worked at MTV and would be on my third film called Welcome to Blazeland because the way I came up with that was I was a huge fan of Michael Keaton being from Pittsburgh, and he did a movie called Night Shift, and he was Billy Blazejowski. So, and his apartment was called Blazeland. But I, so I always sort of had that, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to work at MTV at some point. Um, but it wasn't like, say the beginning of my junior year, I'm like, I'm going balls out. We're acting. I'm going to do it all. Uh, the first thing first was I still was on the, the, the football schedule of you had to wake up at seven, have bre sign in for breakfast, go to your classes. Our classes were between eight and 12, come back, sign in for lunch, go to practice, watch films, come back, sign in for dinner, seven o'clock at night, start to study, which was brutal because then it's like, I can't even keep my eyes open. So with stopping playing football, I still had that same class schedule. So I'd be done with my classes by noon. And then, so I could do, I was like, wow, I've got all this free time now. So I'd go and work out, I'd go and play hoops. I'd come back and do all my study. I'd be done at like eight o'clock at night with any homework I had to do. So then I kind of got into like, hey, I'm living the college life now. I can go out on a Wednesday if I want to go because I've got everything done. Um, that being said, where I started shifting into the acting was my junior year. They had a soap opera at Carolina called General College that was produced, written, 
it was funded by the school, but produced, written, directed, produced everything by the students. It was all hands off by the faculty. Everything was by the students. So um, I went and auditioned. I had a roommate of mine that wanted, or a friend of mine that was going to go audition. I said, I, I'll come with you. And I auditioned for this part of a soccer, a freshman soccer goalie. It was, it was perfect for me, who was obnoxious, who was this <laughs> great goalie, who was like never got scored on. But then it was like throughout the season, one night got drunk at a party and fell off the fifth floor balcony and became paralyzed from his waist down and couldn't play soccer anymore. So then he became suicidal, but found love with his nurse. Right. Who then he could still have sex with the nurse who would, and yeah. you know, people are like, what? And I go, it was a soap opera. And having worked on Melrose place, I go, that was pretty part for course. They, they, they <laughs> yeah. The storylines. Um, but I, I did that. And um, it got picked up by this cable network out of New York called uh, NCTV, which was national college television that then it would, because it aired, uh, in Chapel Hill on the local public access station. So Monday nights at nine o'clock, I was a bartender in Chapel Hill too. Nobody would come out on Monday nights because, you know, kids would party all weekend. So Monday nights, all the cast would come to my bar because it was empty. And plus, because I just served everybody for free. Um, and we'd watch on the big screen, we'd watch the episode. Um, and it was showed, <laughs> excuse me, at like 70 college campuses all over the country. And my friend Tom Zuba went to grad school at Berkeley. And one night he called me and was like, he had had a few and he just said, I came back to my dorm room and I heard this voice. He goes, and I thought, there's only one person because I, my thick Pittsburgh accent, he goes, there's only one person. He goes, and I looked and you were in a wheelchair. <laughs> and I was just like, what? You saw it? So then I immediately was like, no, 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 no. Because I thought too, like, this is so bad. Like, that's the kiss of death. If I really want to be an actor. Yeah. yeah. Um, the irony of all of that was Billy Crudup was on, was on that with me who I, you know, I used to look at the dialogue and when we'd watch it on Monday nights, I'd even tell Billy, I'd be like, you're like, you're good. Like you, some of that dialogue that I would just read and go like, I don't even know how to say this. Like, really, I don't even know how to make this work. This is really, <laughs> this is really bad. <laughs> And you'd watch him and just go like, wow, like he's good, man. Yeah. And then I saw him after I got uh, my job at MTV. MTV Sports was, I think, in like our second season. And we were like the number one show on MTV. I was in New York and um, maybe three or four in the afternoon uh, before going to dinner, I was meeting a friend from New York. So he said, let's meet for a beer. Let's go to this bar. Nobody in the bar. There's one guy sitting at the end of the bar. Really? Don't even look at him when we walk in. We're on our second beer dude comes up to me taps me on the shoulder it's billy and i was like holy shit what are you doing what are you? and he's like what should i do like you you've got this job what do i need to do and i was just like wait what are you doing in new york and he's like i'm at nyu and he's studying acting at nyu i'm like you're doing what you should do like don't try and do what i did mine was so off the wall how i ended up getting uh, the original mtv i was like you're doing it the right way and uh, it was ironic because for, I'm trying to remember, his brother, who also went to Carolina, was a talent booker for a lot of talk shows at the time. I can't remember what exact talk show. Uh, Rosie O'Donnell, I think it was at the time when she had her talk show, and he booked me for that. And I was like, what's Billy doing? He's like, he's done. He's starting, he's doing things off Broadway, then Broadway. He's moving to LA. So 
he did it the right way. And he's really a talented guy. So um, yeah, that's where at Carolina, I started with that. And well, um, give me something. There's something interesting. You said you said in your, you know, maybe, maybe it wasn't this thought out. And in retrospect, it seems like a bigger deal, but your buddy told you in high school, you wrote, I'm going to work for MTV. Like I know MTV was huge back then, but did yeah. you really like, how did that come about? Was that something in your head where you sought out MTV or did it just happen that you liked MTV and you happened to get a gig there? What? Cause that was huge. I mean, I, that's where you first came on the scene for me. Yeah. I don't even remember what year that was, but I remember at some point you were yeah. kind of the, weren't you like the first guy? I mean, you were really, uh, we had right in the mix of that when it was just huge. Right. I had in high school, I, you know, that, like you're saying late eighties, that was like, it had just hit. And that's what you would do. You'd wake up in the morning, you turn on the TV, yeah. leave it on in the background. That's, that was like your radio station. You'd listen to check out the videos, whatever. I thought that's what I want to do. I want to be a VJ on there. Okay, great. When I went to Carolina, my junior year, when I was doing general college, MTV had this search. They were going to 10 universities to find the new VJ. And one of the universities was UNC, it was Carolina. So I went for this trial with all these, you know, tons of kids there. And it was basically that have you do acting exercises with, okay, we're going to pair you up with him and you guys get this far away from each other and see what, you know, and it's anyway, out of, all the people that were there, I was, I made the top five from Carolina. So they were like, okay, here's what's going to happen from these 10 schools. We've got the top five from each school. The people in New York are going to decide. So I went home that summer waiting for a letter that said, you've just been hired to be the next VJ. I got a letter, freaked out, MTV letterhead. Sorry, thanks. Not you. <laughs> Basically what it was. And I was like, yeah, okay, that's fine. Cut to my senior year. And this is basically how I got my job uh, at, at MTV when I moved to LA. My senior year at Carolina, Janet Jackson was in concert at Carolina uh, on a Saturday night. Friday, the Friday prior to that, I was in a professor's office. I tell the story in the book, in the professor's office, arguing about a grade. He gets a phone call. In his, and I said, I, can't, I still to this day can't remember the, the professor's name. Didn't remember it when I worked or when I took the class. I used to call him Richard Dreyfus because he looked like Richard Dreyfus. <laughs> I'm sure he appreciated yeah. it. Yeah. And sometimes I said with my buddy that was in the class with me, we called him Beard Dandruff because I said he would wear dark shirts and he had his beard. So I go, still don't know his name, but we would refer to him as Richard Dreyfus or Beard Dandruff. Great humor at 20, you know. But um, he got a phone call in the middle of me arguing about a grade. And it was somebody from MTV saying, basically, we need four gophers. We'll pay them 40 bucks and they can, you know, put this on their resume. And so the guy hung up the phone and basically said, I'm not, you're not going to change your grade, but do you want to do this? And, you know, I'm, you can ask three other kids or I'll ask them whatever you want to do. So the next night I was working for MTV and there was this producer there that was chosen. Here's what I, Dan, here's what I need you to do. Cause it was going to be live. They were shooting live from outside the concert, the black cat tour. And it was downtown. Julie Brown was the talent. Dan, I need you to be her bodyguard. And it was like, what? I'm like, you're a lot bigger than I am. I'm six foot at the time. I was like probably six foot one seventy five. 
I wasn't, I wasn't holding anybody back, but he's like, keep people away from her. That's all I need you to do. Okay. All right. Great. I looked at as <laughs> all I wanted to do was every time they went live, I would act as if people were trying to get close to her. So I'd, I'd make sure it'd be like this. I'd make sure I'd get in the frame and I'd be just doing this, holding people back. I, I just wanted to get on camera and I would just try and hold people back. And when I'd hold them back, I would try and flex as hard as I could. Just so I looked good on camera. And so <laughs> that was my job. So anyway, after all of that night concluded and everything, because that is also in the book. There's a whole other thing that takes place going on that night. But I, I told the guy, the guy's name was Robert Laforty. He said, hey, gave me his card with the promise of, if you're ever in New York, give me a call, MTV. So I thought, okay, great. Well, when I graduated, after I graduated, my goal was pack up bags, I'm moving to California. And the night I told my parents, my dad was like, how much money do you have saved? I said, 1100 bucks. And he said, who do you know out there? Nobody. Where are you going to live? I don't know yet. Where are you going to work? Well, I'm going to get a job. And I look back at that now. If that were like my son who's in the other room, if he tell me that now, I'd be like, nah, not going to happen. You're not going. <laughs> like yeah. my parents were like, okay, we love you. We support you. Maybe they were just trying to get me the hell out of the house. I was right. the last one. It was right. like, maybe they just wanted the house back to themselves. But um, yeah, I moved out. And then I kept calling them in New York. And I had moved into my studio apartment with my hot plate and, you know, my futon that I bought. And um, I worked the door at a bar making three, I think it was like 325 or 375 an hour. But then I'd get, you'd get paid $20 cash because it was near UCLA. You get paid $20 cash for every fake ID you'd find at the end of the night. So I would take real IDs yeah. and just be like, sorry, you know what? I'll let you go in. But I'm <laughs> I'll going to have to keep this tonight. You can come back and get it tomorrow at noon if it's really real. Um, so, but I'd call MTV all the time and I'm sure they got tired of me calling. But then at one point I got a call from Ted Demi, who would, at the time was the producer of Yo, executive producer of Yo MTV Raps. And uh, Ted, I got home one day and had a voice message from Ted Demi. We're coming out and we need a, a, a PA for a three or it was a, a week long shoot. We need you to blah, blah, blah. Location scout, all this. 300 bucks for the week. I was like, ah. So then any, excuse me, anytime Yo would come out to shoot on the West Coast, I became their sort of go-to guy. Dan will set it up for us. Don't worry, Dan. He'll hook it up. We're good to go. And then from there, MTV then opened a LA-based office of like less than 10 people. And they needed two office PAs. And I became an office PA. And then from there, handed in a treatment in, uh, it was September of 91. They were looking for new show ideas. Handed in a treatment for a show called MTV Sport This with these extreme sports that I had never seen growing up in Pittsburgh with myself as the host and producer. They sent it to New York, like Paul Cockerell, the guy that ran the West Coast office at the time, was like, it's a pretty good idea. I'm going to send it to New York. There was heat around it in New York for about a week, and then it disappeared. By the way, I should have prefaced it with, in September before I handed in the treatment, I was told the first of the year I was gonna be let go because they, were, they weren't making enough money in the West Coast office. So I was like, all right. So I handed the treatment and 
didn't hear anything else about it. And then in November, one of the talent uh, agents in our West Coast office came by my little cubicle and was like, hey, you're really into sports. Who do you think would be good to host this new sports show we're doing? And I was like, what do you mean? So she explains the concept of the show. And the other kid that was the other office PA with me is like, that's Dan's idea. Like, look, pull it up on the computer. You know, it's one of the old, I can't find it. I don't know where the floppy disk um, to try and explain. She goes, yeah, nobody's going to believe that a PA who's getting fired had an idea for this. Plus, there's plenty of other ideas just like this floating around New York. So it's not even your idea. So I said, at least you can let me try out for it. And again, in my book, she told me this was a great learning experience at that point that I would never be on camera for MTV because I was too ethnic to be on camera. And I was just like, what, like, what does that mean? Cause I, I also said like where I grew up as an Italian in Pittsburgh, it's like, Hey, that's like a, that's a compliment. Hey, all right. You're ethnic. You're Italian, Byzantine, whatever. Um, and I said, what do you mean? And she said, nobody wants to see a white guy trying to be a black guy and left. She didn't say it mean spirited. She was just like, no, they'd never hire you. And I was just like, what the hell? So the day that they had their 15 finalists were there to audition and they were all like, professional volleyball players, professional surfers, like guys with some name cachet, but then also, you know, sort of in that world of LA kind of sports guys. And I was there at studio, like logging the tapes and stuff and watching. And the way they conducted the, <laughs> excuse me, the, um, it's not COVID. It might be, I don't know. <laughs> um, the way they conducted the, the auditions were the same woman who told me that was asking guys off camera, asking them on camera. She had a list of like probably seven questions that they would answer. And there was three cameramen out there and they'd answer it on camera. You'd see their personality. Well, one guy was late. So the guy who I handed in the treatment to Paul Cogrell was there. And he goes, I, I don't want to have any downtime. Dan, you said you could do this. Go get out there on stage. So it was one of those things where I didn't even think I, I immediately jumped up. I'm like, okay, if you're serious, I'll go. So I'm running to go across to the stage from the control room. Like, cause I knew everybody. So guys are clapping and like, yeah, all right. Like whatever. I get out there, the cameramen, I knew all the cameramen. Woo. Okay. Here we go. I never really thought they were even going to film it. So the woman refused to ask me the questions that she was asking everybody else. She's like, nah. So I had taken some improv classes at Carolina and so I figured I knew all three cameramen. So I started talking directly into camera to this guy and this, and I just improv this whole thing about back in like the early nineties, there was a mud wrestling place in, or in LA called the Hollywood Tropicana. So I improv a bit about going to the Hollywood Tropicana with each cameraman. And then like the wrestling that took place there, this, it was maybe three minutes. Boop, think Dan, the guy's here, get off the stage. Okay, great. So I'm like, thank you. Thank you. And like crews clapping for me, whatever. I walk off. Don't even think anything else about it. They finish that night and they get the reel together. And then again, ironically enough, I was the guy that was in charge of dropping off the reel for the overnight delivery. PA, all right, take it to the FedEx, drop it off. Let's go. It wasn't FedEx at the time. I don't know, whatever express. Um, the next day, I get a call from this guy, Patrick Burns, in New York. Patrick's one of my best friends now. And he goes, 
Hey, Dan, this is Patrick Burns. I'm the executive producer of MTV Sports. Uh, I get in my office. At, I'm still PAing. Really liked what you did. It was different than what everybody else did. And, you know, starts giving me all these compliments. I immediately thought it was my buddy who was a PA in New York, this guy, Ed Capuano, completely messing with me. I'm like, yeah, all right. All right, Shreddy. Yeah, whatever. About to, like, hang up. I'm like, not cool. I'm being fired. Like, and now you're messing with me. It's like, and Patrick's very even. And I said, no. He's like, this is Patrick Burns, and I loved what you did. I want to know. Do you want to be the host of MTV Sports? And couldn't even tell you what I told him. And I was just like, yeah, all right, tomorrow we're going to fax out the contract, sign the contract, send it back. We're shooting the pilot. That was on a, we, we, I auditioned on Monday, Tuesday, I got the call Wednesday. They sent the contract, still didn't sign it by Thursday. I get a call from business affairs in New York because I didn't have a lawyer, didn't know what I was looking for. They called me in New York saying from business affairs, if you don't sign it, they're hiring somebody else, sign it, fax it back. Friday I was on a plane to go shoot the pilot Saturday at New River Gorge, West Virginia, people were base jumping off of the bridge, New River Gorge Bridge there. So like Monday I was a PA, Saturday I was shooting the the pilot for this new show. We are supported by Poopery. If you got to go, but you don't want the whole house to know you just went, you know what I'm talking about. Come on, fess up. That's why we have Poopery. Simply spray the bowl before you go and a layer of essential oils traps bathroom odor before it begins. Sound crazy? Sure. But guess what? It works. In fact, they guarantee it. It's available in a variety of scents and sizes so that every bathroom is stocked. And now Poopery offers hand sanitizer too, a moisturizing blend of coconut and lavender that kills 99.9% of germs in 15 seconds. But it's not just about the bathroom odor. Here's why I love it and endorse it. Poopery liberates everyone from toxic thoughts and ingredients, not just the product, the company. That's their mantra. They do so much more for their community. 10% of profits are being donated to Texas charities and additional quantities are being donated to medical professionals in need. And now for 10,000 Nose listeners, you can use code DelNegro15 for 15% off your next order of $25 or more when you check out at poopery.com. Again, that code is DelNegro15. And now back to the show. And it was crazy because we did that as just um, one of the segments. And then about a week or two later, we shot wraparound segments. And the first episode we did, the wraparounds was with Bo Jackson. And the initial way that the show was supposed to be was, hey, we're going to shoot all these crazy sports, but then the wraparounds are going to be with this guy, Dan, who's going to sit down on a cat, like do sit down interviews with athletes or extreme athletes. So when we shot the, the thing with Bo, we were at our stage, but Bo, we were piggybacking on another shoot. He was doing uh, like a top 20 countdown or something. So we were like, can we get Bo for like 15, 20 minutes after that? Sure. Um, and it was at the height of the Bo Nose days. He uh, was like, yeah, I mean, it was huge. Greatest athlete on the planet, blah, blah. So when it, we went to our set, all that was there was a couple cameras set up and a couch in the middle of this giant stage. And it was like, and the thing that I think really helped our show too was Patrick made this brilliant decision. We shot it on film. So even all of our, everything was either on eight or 16 and even all the B roll was on eight millimeter. So it had this look to it anyway, that it was like, it's kind of edgy. And they'd always like, like the film would end. It would look cool. It was like, you know, now all the stuff that you can get on an app and go like, Oh, I'm going to make it look like it's, yeah. but so we're waiting for Bo to show up. I'm nervous. 
because it's Bo Jackson. But at the same time, it's like, I'm trying to keep the crew up. Blah, blah. So at one point I'm like, where is he? Where's Bo? Bo don't know. Bo don't know Dan. Bo don't know Dan. I'm telling you that much. And just riffing about something like that. And I'm laughing and I'm looking at the crew that's like this. And it's like one of those where you hear like, eh. so yeah, I kind of yeah. like look behind me and he's backlit. He came through the stage door and he's backlit. <laughs> and like Patrick was there, like all these like talent reps and then Patrick's there and they're just, they run over to him real quick. Hey Bo, how are you? And I'm just like, like, and I'm looking at the camera, like, when did he come in the door? Like, what, why did you guys give me like a high sign or whatever? So, and he's a very serious dude anyway. So, you know, I immediately like walk over, shake his hands or introduce myself. And he like, I was always raised, you give a firm handshake, look somebody in the eye. Gave him the firm handshake. Dude, he like, there was pain that went from my hand to my elbow. He squeezed my hand so hard. So... They legit, his people were like, let's shoot, let's go. So by the time we walked from the door to the couch, it was like, let's roll. So I was just like, cause Rick Patrick, his whole thing with me was do whatever Dan does to loosen him up. Just talk, you talk to everybody like they're your best friend. Just talk to Bo like he's your best friend. And I was like, at this point I'm like, oh my God, yeah. I'm 22. I'm thinking he's gonna drop me. Yeah. And I'm just like, so like the very first thing, don't even know why. So like, okay, we're rolling. I'm like, well, what's up, handsome? How you doing today? You're looking good. <laughs> he just kind of like looks at me and then starts to laugh and goes, I'm good. And after that, it was like, we were off and rolling and he, we were having fun. He was laughing. Maybe 15 minutes, maybe tops. We had him. We're done. And when we, when we finished, He's like, they were like, can we get some pictures with you and Dan? Sure, take a few pictures. And he shakes my hand again and goes, that was a lot of fun. I appreciate that. That was a lot of fun. And that sort of was became like the blueprint for me because I was always like, and also in dealing with him, I was very self-deprecating and making fun of myself with it. So I think for any other interview I did with cele big celebrities and or athletes like that, it was like, I would always tell them prior to it, I'm not going to try and undermine you. I'm not going to ask you about your contract, your divorce, your we're just going to have fun. Right. If anybody's going to get made fun of, make fun of me. I don't care. Like right. we're just, we're going to have fun. Um, so that sort of became my blueprint, but then that was like an amazing thing. So I'm being very long winded about that, this, but I wanted to get to one point. Our second show that we shot, it was from a rock and jock and Patrick was producing. He had created the whole rock, all the rock and jock games. And it was the second one they ever did. And he was producing that. And he wanted to do the wraparounds from the Rock and Jock. And his whole thing was. Explain uh, the Rock and Jock to everybody. Rock and Jock games were back in the nine, all of the 90s, the decade of the 90s. MTV did these games called Rock and Jock, where it was basketball and softball. And they were celebrity driven games where yeah. you'd have not just the biggest celebrities and musicians because of MTV, you'd have the biggest athletes in the world. For yeah. example, our softball game, we had one year, just the baseball players were guys who actually played at the time, weren't retired guys. It was Derek Jeter, Ken Griffey Jr., uh, A-Rod, Bobby Bonilla, um, uh, just like guys that were in their prime yeah. that were like, it's MTV. We're coming to play for MTV with John Bon Jovi and Flea from the Chili Pepper. And yeah, so you yeah. get, and the thing that was so great about them was they, everybody was starstruck. 
so it wasn't like the athletes playing with average people. Like, all right, you had athletes that were like, holy shit, I'm meeting Chuck D and Flavor Flavor right now because they're on my team. So everybody wanted to yeah. be friends with everybody else. So this was one of those games that we were, I wasn't playing in the game at the time, but we were going to shoot the wraparounds from it. And Patrick was like, I can't be with you shooting the wraparounds. So you need to take the crew. And the crew was basically one sound guy and one camera guy, and then a PA running B-roll. Um, and here's, I need you to hit like these 10 bullet points. Whatever you do, at some point, like hit these for me a couple times each. And so I have something to edit to. But, and I go, but what about like, I thought, where, do you want me to sit down? He goes, I don't, he was so stressed. He's like, I don't care what you do. Just hit these bullet points. So he left and I looked at our cameraman who was a buddy of mine and I just started laughing and he goes, what? And I go, so like we have free reign to do whatever we want to do. And he's like, keep your job, keep your job. <laughs> and I was like, I will, I will. <laughs> so that literally led to me just going like, I ended up like, I would grab him on camera. I'd grab the cameraman or I'd grab the camera. Come here, follow me, follow me. So everything was movement and everything. I would just go and if there's celeb people talking, I would just go join the conversation. I don't care. And in the middle of talking to Roseanne and Hammer, it's like, really? What do you guys think about this base jumping thing? And I'd get my bullet points in sort of that way and try and make it natural, do it naturally. But um at the end of that shoot, when we did that, at the end of the day, we saw Rick and he said, how did it go? Did you, did you hit all the bullet points? And I just said, here's the deal. We tried a little something different. And I said, I mean, the crew loved it. I think it's good. Um, I said, but you're either going to love it or you're going to fire me. Yeah. So I didn't hear from him for like a week, which there's back in the day, no social media, no cell phones. No, it was like, and I thought, oh man like this is bad because I still had my office at, at MTV and I was like, this is no good. I'm like, I'm done. So he ended up calling me, left a message, said, call me. We need to have a talk. And I was just like, Shh. so I call him back and he goes, look, I, I watched the stuff. He goes, I've been busy with the, the rock and jack stuff. He goes, but I watched your footage. He said, and I think I found out what direction I want to go with MTV sports. And I was like, all right. And he goes, we're basically going to do this. He goes, I loved what you did. He goes, so we're basically going to send you out wherever we send you. You're going to go do what you do. And then we're going to take all the stuff and do what we do and <laughs> piece it together and put it together. And that became the formula for the show then where it was like, Hey, let's just freewheel and don't get, we had, cause the crew for that, the whole show was produced out of New York and I lived in LA. So I wasn't there on the day-to-day -day basis. I didn't know what was going on. I was like an outsider yeah. to MTV. Um, and so I really wasn't privy to all the stuff that was taking place. So for me, it was like every week or two, they'd be like, okay, dude, we're flying to Sweden and you're going to go test drive these Volvos on ice tracks in the Arctic Circle. And, and I'd be like, all right, cool, let's go. You're going to go, what do you want to do? I told them at one point, I want to run with the Bulls in Spain. So we shot an episode around. It was just like the greatest job you could ever imagine. What was the the lag time between doing it that first time and then it airing and becoming a phenomenon? Like um, 
Was it already a phenomenon a little bit by the time you did that or no? Did you shoot a bunch of crazy stuff and then, and you were like, this is a cool job. I don't know if anybody will ever see it. And then all of a sudden it was like, boom. We, we you- shot um, the pilot with, with the, in West Virginia and Bo. I think Bo was the first week of a December. And then we aired February, like early February or late February, it was either January or February, like 27. And we had already shot the sec- only the second episode, the Rocket Jock one. So and, even it when- immediately, and it immediately came on the scene. So then you were doing that, and you were also getting, I would imagine, recognized all over the place. And, well, all and that, that was the stuff. thing. We did that. And then after the first one aired, because, you know, MTV2, that's, we aired, they would air Saturday nights, but then they just rerun stuff like crazy, like crazy. By the time the second one aired, MTV's like, we're putting it on worldwide. So our third episode was on in 72 countries. And then like not even too far into that, we were the number one show worldwide for them. It was like, what is all this crazy stuff? So And you're yeah. 22 or 23. What yeah. does that do to your what does that do to your psyche? Do you become an a-hole? Do you, do you, are you totally appreciative and grateful of it? Do you like, um, did, did people try to angle at you? What, what was like some of the stuff that, what, what, were there any downsides? And if so, what were they? I was, I was fortunate enough that it all happened so fast. I didn't really have time to process it. Um, so I still was appreciative. And also, I mean, the great icing to the cake of the story was I was making $300 a week as a full-time PA. And that's what I was living on in LA. When I got the, the contract they forced me to sign was for on-air talent making $400 per episode. And we were only going to do 20 episodes. So I actually halfway into the season told Patrick, I'm like, I can't afford to, I'm making less as on-air talent on the number one show in the world for the network. Yeah. Then I was as a PA. Well, that was going to be my, I was assuming when they had you sign that and you had yeah. no agent, no lawyer that you got totally screwed, but it has a silver lining, yeah. obviously. So. And so I told him, I'm like, I'm going to have to get a job bartending or something. Is there any way you can help me out? So he called me back and he's like, look, I went through everything, business affairs, blah, 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 the uh, budget. He goes, we can't pay you anymore. He goes, but what we do have in the budget, it's budgeted to have one more PA in New York. He said, but what I can do is hire you to be the West coast PA of MTV sports. So, and personal assistant to Dan Cortez. So I became the West coast PA of MTV sports and my own personal assistant just to make the extra 300 bucks a week to pay rent. And like, I would legit, I book my flights. I'd, I'd location scout. I'd book my town cars to take me from the, my apartment to the, and I got, and all those people knew me. So they'd be like, this is great. You're so humble. You're doing all this for yourself to book. And I'm like, no, actually like it's my job. Yeah. <laughs> I have to do this stuff because it's, it's part of the gig, but it kept me humble. Um, but you know, I mean, you also, I know you ended up doing a ton of like a whole Burger King yeah. campaign and I'm sure that paid you really well. Yeah. And I'm sure there are ways, you know, obviously in which you capitalize, but I, I think it's interesting. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's important for my listeners, particularly 10,000 knows like, you know, 
You guys hear this story. I know for myself, I'm a little bit, the couple years behind you, but I, you were like, it's like, well, that's the greatest job in the world. And it sounds like it was. And yet there's always, when you scratch the surface, there's always a little something there that's yeah. like, you know, now being a little older, as you're telling the story, I saw that coming that there's probably a terrible contract or whatever. Yeah. But at the same time, you get the exposure, you get their infrastructure, you're known around the world, and now yeah. you parlay that into campaigns and you all yeah. the other stuff. But it's just, it's. I think it's good for people to hear. It's never just, usually, it's not just so cut and dry, especially the first right. time out, you know? Right. I mean, that's as close to an overnight sensation as one could get. Yeah. And still there's like this other side to the story well, that and I didn't like, know until just now. You yeah, know? and I would always have actors ask me who were just starting out, what, what did you do? Cause I want to do that. And it's like, no, you don't. Like I, I feel, uh, I feel that if I would have never put that out there, if I would have never written the treatment, if I would have never said, give me this chance, I would have never got a shot to even audition for it. So I feel being positive and putting that out there, um, yeah. was a good thing. There was, Prior to me handing in the treatment, MTV had its 10th anniversary. And I remember in the West Coast office, there was going to be this whole huge celebration in New York. And I remember asking Paul, the guy that ran the West Coast, like, what? So do we get uh, a party out here too? And he's like, I, you know what? I can take petty cash and take you guys out for beers. Like, that was it. We weren't getting anything. So that weekend, prior to that, I took one of the cameras from the office that had the old microphones and an MTV mic cube on it. So as a joke, I had my buddy, I lived in Manhattan beach at the time in this guy's basement. I said, we're going to go to the beach and I'm just going to, here's a nineties term for you bum rush people with the camera and the MTV mic cube and talk to them. What do you love about MTV? It's 10th anniversary. What do you got to say to people? About it? So we shot it as a joke and went back and we were watching it and drinking beer in my apartment. Look at this. Oh my God. It's hilarious. So didn't edit anything. So that Monday gave that tape to Paul, like as a joke, Hey, did you hear about the celebration for MTV? The West coast of gave it to him and he watched it, thought it was funny and everything. And we're like, whatever. He goes, I, I gotta be honest with you. I know it was a joke. He goes, but that was, that was pretty good. And I think had I never done that, Paul would have never said, Hey, get out there. You said you could do this. So he had seen maybe some energy or whatever. None of that was premeditated. But in looking back at it, it's like I took certain steps that I was unaware of at the time to like be proactive to maybe get me in the situation. Well, you, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the format of this show, but at the end, I always do these yeah. top three takeaways, which is always impossible to pick the top three. But as you're talking, I've had to mute myself. Basically, I've had to gag myself so that <laughs> I could let you talk because I think there are so I'm going to have a field day with the takeaways because there are so many lessons for people in what you did. And I, I completely agree. It's, it's, it's so it's, this is a very unique interview for me because we did it very different ways. Mm -hmm. We have, very, we have a lot of similarities. I think I was way more, um, reserved and didn't go outside, outside of the box the way you did. Mm -hmm. And I'm hearing it and I'm like, God, that's just, I now know that's just so smart. You put yourself in a position. If you even go back to like the first thing you did, you were, even though 
you didn't plan it. When you did that first audition and you and you ended up improving into the camera, you were on your home turf. Yeah. You got your camera guys, you got your thing. You yes, you had that woman against you, but you had a leg up. You also knew the questions ahead of time. You put yourself in a position to succeed, which is a big thing we talk about <laughs> on this show. And I was always, it took me so long to realize, oh, you don't have to play by the rules. Like I was always so used to like, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be in the scene study class. And it has served me. It, it has served me in a long, a way slower, yeah. long burn. But, but it has, it's so interesting to hear. I'm like, God, you know, hats off to you for just having the balls to go, just to go grab that mic, to go grab those, the cameras and, and just and just go do it to write the treatment. I, I think, I think it's awesome. Um, I got to tell you, I had um, Patrick Burns, the guy I told you was the creator and EP of MTV sports. He and I remained really close to good friends and we're developing another project right now. And maybe four or five months ago, we met for coffee and we're talking about something. And the whole audition for MTV sports came up and he told me, he goes, you know, what was so brilliant about what you did? He goes, you were so different than everybody else because you chose to talk to the cameras. He goes, and when I saw that, he goes, I immediately thought, Hey, he just made the viewer part of the show. And he gives me this whole drawn out uh, conclusion of this brilliant thing that I did. He goes, and the other great thing you did was you went last. So I said, you know, Rick, I love you. And we've known each other for 25 years. So I'm going to tell you right now, I didn't choose to do that. This person refused to ask me questions. So I wasn't thinking, hey, I'm going to make the camera a viewer and talk to I go, I had no other choice. So I knew the cameramen. So I talked to them. And I said, also, I didn't go last. What they did was they ended up just tacking my audition at the very end of the reel. He, and he started laughing. He goes, worked out brilliantly. He goes, yeah. because we watched the whole thing. He goes, and there was maybe one or two guys we liked. He goes, everybody seemed kind of stiff. He goes, and then when you came on last, he goes, there was nobody else coming after you to compare you to. He goes, I felt like you were talking right to me. He goes, and also, he goes, to be really honest with you, he goes, we needed to hire somebody because we were dead set on shooting on Saturday. He goes, so if we weren't going to shoot for another week, he goes, I might've had another round of auditions just to see people because, but it's weird how it worked out where it's like, he goes, and I don't know why I was so dead set on going to let's watch these people base jump off of an 800 foot bridge in West Virginia. He goes, but that's like, my window was like, okay, that's our guy. Yeah. Let's go. And, and that's, you just summed up the, the tagline of this podcast is failure is opportunity. It's mm -hmm. like you, you have to, call an audible in the middle. You have to adapt, is what that, which is what you did. And then also there's something to right place at the right time, yeah. destiny. And, you know, we all, everybody listening has their own story of, of when that works out, when it doesn't. I know as an actor, there are times when I'm up for something and I, I'm trying to create a narrative that's like, oh, this is why this is going to happen because this, yeah. and, the, and then a lot of times it doesn't. The next time I'm in that situation again, I do the same do thing. The same I thing. always, <laughs> I always tell myself, I, I, yeah. I talk about that in my book. I call it willful denial. I yeah. just make everything line up to, to feed my narrative that will help 
me. That's a good thing get, to do, though. Get up for the gig or get up for the audition or whatever it might be. Hey, but, you know what you're doing? You're doing Michael Jordan from The Last Dance, looking for any reason that that guy is going to upset me so I can take my A game back again, making things up in his own mind. That yeah. really pissed me off. So that's why I'm going to take it to. So you're making that. I love that yeah. willful denial. This willful is, denial. This is yeah. why all this lined up to get me here today to get this part. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I, that's what I always do. But I, 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 you know, and I also love the fact that, you know, I'll always talk about it is not the critic that counts. It's like, it's beautiful that the critic in this case is your buddy who hired you, who's now your friend, but it's, it's still the same thing. That is someone outside of the creative process. That is someone yeah. outside of the arena. The man yeah. in the arena was you. He can tack on whatever he wants about yeah. what your performance was and why it was great, why it was terrible, why you swung and missed, whatever it might be. That's not the guy in the arena. The guy in the arena is the guy who has the courage to get out there when he knows this woman hates him, when he knows this woman doesn't want him there and go, F you, I'm looking right in the camera and I'm going to improv because this is my spot. I got yeah. the mic. Yeah. I, I I love it. There, by the way, we're over an hour. There are so many things that I have <laughs> written down that I want to talk. I mean, I'll shorten it. <laughs> yeah. Let me, let me, let me just get, we're, we're going to do like a, a condensed version of, um, I want you to just give a little bit about the book and the title. Yeah. I went back preparing for this. I went back and I saw your stuff on Seinfeld. I was dying laughing the, yeah. the, and the whole step off thing, what I heard. And I don't know if it's lore or if it's, was that just an improv that you did? Uh, on set, Larry, or was when Larry uh, had come up to me during Larry David had come up to me during the week of rehearsal. I can't tell you what the line originally was. I don't remember, but um, they're very, that, that set, because that was my favorite show. It's the number one show on television. And I got to be on an episode. It was amazing. But they were so, everybody was just so welcoming and engaging. And what a creative working atmosphere where there was no ego from Jerry or Larry. And Larry came up one day during rehearsal where I was working with Jason. And he just said, I don't know. It's like that line isn't working, isn't working. So people were, the writers were trying to come up. And he just goes, Dan, like you do this MTV stuff. Like, give me, give me a few things. Like, what, what would kids your age say? And I think step off was like the second or third thing I said. And Jason just goes, step off. And like <laughs> repeats it like George. And Larry just goes, that's it. Say that. Say that. What was it? Step off. Yeah, say that. That's the line. So that then just became, you know, it wasn't like, hey, this was written. And um, so, yeah, it was just, that's how, I think that's why that show was so yeah. Did you ever hear the story? And then I'll, I'll speed up the um, the episode about trying to where Jerry couldn't remember the girl's name and he knew it rhymed with a female body part. And they just they had all these different lines written and they couldn't come up because he was supposed to guess yeah. what her name was. And because she said, you don't know my name. But what's my name? And then he guesses and everything they had written. They weren't getting laughs. So they had the guy, the warm up guy while the writers are writing, does anybody have any ideas in the crowd? And one of some guy in the crowd from like Wisconsin, I think they said somewhere in the mid Midwest was like Mova and like the place lost it and went crazy. So Larry was like, told the writers, 
stop writing. We're going to say that. And <laughs> they used it. And the best part was, I said, I was telling my wife, when we, that episode wasn't on too long ago. I said, you know, there's some guy in Wisconsin right now that's sitting at a bar going, I, I gave him that. I went to that and I gave yeah, that line. Exactly. Yeah, okay, Maury. All right, buddy. That was yeah, you, exactly. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure it was you. Okay. Um, so, well, go I'm getting, you know, because you've, you've mentioned a couple of the stories you told today. I, I got to read this book because it's your, your stories. Are, you're a great storyteller. And the, Thank you. the it's called Step Off, My Journey from Mimbo to Manhood. Um, give us the, you know, the, there's a whole thing about Mimbo. Right. So just explain that and explain, you know, the gist of why you wanted to write this book and what it is for you. Well, uh, I'll explain Mimbo first. That was the episode of Seinfeld I was on was uh, I played Elaine's boyfriend, whose name was Tony. But Jerry had told Elaine, like, let's be honest, because that was pretty vapid. It was like the character was really not the smartest guy. So Jerry had told her at one point, you're only dating him for the way he looks. It has nothing to do. There's nothing cerebral there. And she's like, that's not true. And he's, he said, it is. He's, he's a male bimbo. He's a mimbo. So that, from that episode, excuse me, that became into pop culture folklore was mimbo. So I became known, I was the original mimbo. Hey, there's the mimbo. People talk. So when I was approached to write the book uh, by Matt Holt, uh, he had said, he kept saying, I want you to write something positive. He had, saw, he had seen via Instagram that I had just had a, a new baby. And he's like, I want you to write something like about fame and fatherhood, but make it positive. We need more positivity. You're a positive guy. And throughout these emails back and forth, he kept saying, I wanted to be more Dan, be more Dan, be more Dan. And I was just like, okay, I got on the phone with him and I said, I just, I got to, we had talked on the phone and email, but had never spoken in person. Um, excuse me. And I said, you know, I just for, I'm not trying to be an ass. I said, but just for clarification for me, you keep saying you want it to be more Dan. I, I, I don't want to be a jerk, but I'm not really sure if I know like what you mean by that. I said, you've <laughs> never met me in person. What do you think? Cause I was still on the fence about writing it. And um, I said, what, what do you think I'm like? Like if you were to meet me in person, what do you think <laughs> I'm like, excuse me. And he goes, well, I've talked to people in the office and we've come to a general consensus that we think you'd be like the character you played in Seinfeld. And then he proceeds to, this is the whole forward of the book. I tell this story. He proceeds to just flatter me with all these compliments. And it's, I didn't listen to any of it. All I heard was, you're a male bimbo. You're a mimbo. And I heard, and I, and I thought like, I'm, I'm so much more than that. I'm not that guy and really nice things, to, but I'm not that guy. So I stop him and I just go, I'll write the book. And he goes, what? And I go, I'll write the book. I want to write the book because in my mind, I was like, this is the perfect opportunity. And I even say it in the forward. I go, if you don't like the narrative, become the narrator of your own story. And I said, so I'm not a mimbo. Is that part of me? Is that part of my life? Sure. But that's not me. So I want to tell my story. Um, and even then, this is also in the forward, he introduced me to John Gordon. You know, Positivity Guru has written all these wonderful books via email. And said, kind of like he did with you, and said, hey, John, at the end of that email said, if you want to know more about Dan, Google him. 
And I was like, so obviously I read that. What do I do? I'm going to Google me. And you see Mimbo. Hey, Stefan references Dan Cortez on Saturday Night Live. Twitter goes wild. He's the Burger King guy. He's, and I'm looking at all this stuff going, no, don't, don't Google me. That isn't going to tell you anything about who Dan is. So that, all of that was sort of fuel for me to write this book in the sense of, <laughs> excuse me, I want to I tell my story the way I see it. Because I even said, the way I perceive myself, and this is with anybody, but the way I perceive myself, how I think other people perceive me, and how other people actually perceive me are three entirely different things. So I want to basically look at my life as a, a jigsaw puzzle. Take all the pieces, break up that puzzle, throw it away. Start putting it back together. And when I'm done putting it back together, is it going to look the same that I think, is it going to look the way I think it's going to look? Or is it going to look completely different? And when I started the book, I told them, I said, I, I want to tell this, this isn't a, at a five years old, I, did, I said, I'm just, I'm taking random stories from my life growing up, my foundation, then fame, and then fatherhood are the three parts of the book. Random stories that my mind has chosen to remember. Like, and they're not necessarily always the most important ones. It's just like, I don't know why I remember this from when I was seven years old, but I do. And I would take those and, and tell them sort of from a comedic perspective, but then also at the end of each story, try and really look into like, why do I remember this? And here's what I learned from it as an adult now. So that becomes the journey from, okay, you think I'm a mimbo? Maybe I was, maybe, I don't know. Let me go look. But this is where I was and this is what I've become. And I'll be honest with you, Matt, it's like the book took on a life of its own once I started writing it. And it didn't end up the way I thought it was going to end up. Yeah. And a lot of times I'll promote the book because I'm so proud of it, but I'll promote it. And I always, I'll put a hashtag out just saying, it's not what you think. Um, because, so that's why I chose, Step Off was, we spoke of earlier. That's why we chose that title. Um, or I did. They had all these, <laughs> they gave me, the publishers gave me all these titles like The Tao of Dan. The, <laughs> and I was just like, what? I don't even know what that means. Like, I, that, that's nothing I would even say. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah. let's take something that's familiar to me, but then also I want to connect it to why I decided to write the book in the first place. You called me a mimbo. So yeah. I love it. I, lo I, I love it. I had a similar experience, you know, similar and different, but, but of writing the book and not only writing the book, but doing this podcast of, yeah. of telling my own story, similar thing of, of just, you, you know, there's an exterior, there's an interior. How do you, how do you tell your own story? And that's yeah. the same thing. I encourage people in, in my forward, I say something about, or, or in the post, I don't know, at the end of it, I think I say, you know, you, we all have our stories and how are you going to tell yours? So I think it's, I, I'm really excited just hearing these stories. I want to see the written version of them. I've got three and, and it's going to be available anywhere. I'm going to put links in the yeah. show notes so people can go get it. Yeah. Go, go buy it. If you, if you guys listen and you're laughing the way I'm laughing and you like these stories and you realize that the, the core of where they come from, go, go, just go check out the book and go support Dan and, and buy the book. Thank I, you. I, I would urge you to do that. Let um, me just I say got, one last thing about it too. I, I, sorry to interrupt, but it's, yeah. And then I'll stop with the book, but it, it literally, I had this guy, Jonas Elrod, uh, who wrote an endorsement for the book. He's a director, producer, and uh, works a lot with Oprah's Soul Sundays. And he's a very spiritual 
dude, man, he's got a beard and he's like has visions and and sees like I don't want to make sense, but sees dead people. But I like has he's a spiritual cat, man. He's really deep and interesting. And read it, and I felt even when I wrote it, it's anecdotal and funny, but it sort of has this arc too, where by the time it's over, it became it it's sort of become a spiritual kind of book. And he said, uh, which I took as a huge compliment from him. He said, you were so spiritual without being spiritual. Yeah. He said, and you did it in a way where it's like, Hey, the average guy relates to that. You're not hitting anybody over the head. You're just saying, this is why this book might relate to you. This is how I feel right now. So I kind of feel it's that arc of, well, you know, you, you know, I, you and I have exchanged emails, um, and I've liked you on the emails. This is really the first time we're talking. I think I met you years ago at an audition at some place. We, we said like, hey, you know, you probably didn't know who I was. I knew who you were at the time. It was a while ago. But in just sitting down with you, you're, you just have, yeah, you got an honesty. You got a self-deprecating kind of honesty that is uh, very much appreciated by me. I, I can me. tell from the stories you've told that that's in the books and I, yeah. and I, in the book. And I think that's why he would say that I got to, I'm going to keep you for like Do literally it. two more minutes to tell you these, unless you answer them in your own, oh, if you okay. want to, <laughs> if you want to expand, you can, but there are three questions I ask everybody. Okay. The first one is the word no means what to you? Not my vocabulary. I, you can't, uh, that, look, I always talk about positivity and no has negative connotations. Um, no is just, you could look at it as an opportunity. I look at it as if I'm going to hear it, let's figure out how to get past it. It's just an obstacle. And sometimes you don't go around it. Sometimes you got to go through it, but it's not my vocabulary. Even with, you know, my kids, it's like, let's talk it out. Let's figure it out. Let's find a solution. But that's, you know, I, I try to avoid that. Uh, as much as possible. What about um, if when everything is falling apart, everything's going sideways, do you have a go-to mantra? If so, what is it? You know, I don't know if it's a go-to mantra. I just, you know, I got to tell myself, I always say, don't ever say why me when things are going bad. Say why me when things are going great. Why, why am I so fortunate to be in this position? Because, you know, I've got a great partner in my wife that even when things are bad, it's like, hey, still got a roof over my head. We still got all these positive things. So as long as you keep that mindset, because, man, it's easy, you know, too. It's like I always would describe myself as a work, working class actor. And if you're not working, you're not eating. I'm not making $20 million a picture. I'm not, you know, it's like you got to work to eat. And there's times, hey, where's that next check going to come from? And you, it's easy to wallow in that depression and self-pity of like, Hey man, I'm good. Why isn't anybody helping me out? But you can't, you just, you have to stay in that positive mindset of like, Hey, today, I always say, don't say things are going good or they're going bad. You say they're going good or not so good, but it's, you know, you're always, you got to find the blessings in each day. That's great. And then the last question I have for you is if you could give your younger self advice what age would you intervene and what would the advice be? Oh, wow. That's a great question. I had to give myself my younger self advice. Yeah. Cause yeah. truthfully I would say I wouldn't. I'd say, because you know what? I kind of just growing up and I, I grew up sort of throwing caution to the wind and trusting my gut. And, um, 
I've learned so much more from the mistakes I've made in life than from the successes I've had in life. And uh, maybe that would be the thing I'd tell myself, because uh, when would I listen? Uh, I would probably tell a 17, 18 year old Dan before he goes to college, when you F up, pay attention to it and don't forget it and learn from it. Don't just go, oh, whew, got out of that one. Learn from it. Be present in every moment. Because it's so many people say, live, live in the now, be present, pay attention. But so many people do that only when times are going well. You got to also be, if you're going to truly live your life like that, you got to be present when things are crap and go, how bad is this situation right now? I had, and again, I'll try and be brief. One thing that happened to me, and I write about it in the book, I was at a Planet Hollywood opening in 1996 in Honolulu, Hawaii. And it was the night before the opening, and they had a pre-opening with all the celebrities there, and everybody's drinking a lot. And I ran down this giant escalator. I was wearing jeans that were too long and flip-flops to go to the bathroom downstairs. Trip, fall down, land on my face on the escalator, completely disfigured. I had uh, close to 100 stitches in and outside my face. My nostril was detached and all this end of my career. I had to have 1230 at night on a Saturday or yeah, Saturday night in Honolulu trying to get a plastic surgeon in to uh, uh, an emergency room to put Humpty together again. And I never got a chance from when I fell down the escalator until I got to the hospital to go to the bathroom. So they had cleaned me up, got me ready for surgery. But then I was like, I have to go to the bathroom so bad. So there was a bathroom off the room where they were going to do the surgery. They let me go in there. And it was the first time I had seen my face from what had happened. I, and I was all cleaned up and ready for it. But I looked in the mirror and I say, that was the moment where it's like, I need to absorb this moment as much as possible right now. Because I didn't look like me, but I didn't want to be like, oh man, that's bad. Okay, let me get him. I needed to absorb that. And just, hey, th things like this happen in life. And metaphorically, everybody at some point in their life falls down their own escalator and bad things happen or not so good things happen. And you just, it's not how you fall down. It's how you get back up. But you need to be present in those moments as well. I don't even know if I answered your question. No, you but did. <laughs> you know, you said what, what a lot of people, a lot of people will say that they'll say, yeah, I could give advice. But one, why give advice? Because I learned everything. You know, that's the whole thing. Yeah. Failure is opportunity. And then also 17 year old kids never going to listen to you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's a trick question. That's the truth. <laughs> Dan Cortez, th thank you to Michael Jordan for getting you on here. Right? Because, because look at this, look at us. Like, yeah, I was drinking almost this. an hour and a half. This was not only did we get up to our normal length, we got beyond it. I mean, <laughs> that's, that, that's what we call playing hurt. I love it. <laughs> Dude, really, really nice talking to you, man. Really I, nice. I really thank appreciate you. the time and your energy and, uh, Thank you so much, man. You're an inspiration. I appreciate it. What we do here is go back, 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 back. Okay, top three takeaways. One, be proactive. Don't just sit at home waiting for the phone to ring. I feel that if I would have never put that out there, if I would have never written the treatment, if I would have never said, give me this chance, I would have never got a shot to even audition for it. So I feel being positive and putting that out there um, was a good thing. I know it's cliche, but luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. Number two, you control your story. Don't wait for other people to define you. If you don't like the narrative, become the narrator of your own story. 
Personally, I feel like I didn't start learning this lesson until I started this podcast. And that led me to start to speak publicly and then led to a book in which I got to tell my story as I see it. Why not give yourself a shot? The world usually isn't going to offer you the opportunities. You have to make them. Number three, overnight success is a myth. I was making $300 a week as a full-time PA. And that's what I was living on in LA. When I got the the contract they forced me to sign was for on-air talent making $400 per episode. And we were only going to do 20 episodes. So I actually, halfway into the season, told Patrick, I'm like, I can't afford to, I'm making less as on-air talent on the number one show in the world for the network than I was as a PA. This is the whole premise of this show. My original suspicion that when you scratch the surface of any story of success, it's usually riddled with setbacks, obstacles, and massive amounts of preparation and devotion. What the rest of us are seeing is just the tip of the iceberg. That's just the fruits of the labor. But there was always a ton of labor that preceded it. Okay, Dan Cortez, thank you. Everyone listening, I hope you go buy his book and give it a read. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. If you dug this, please rate, review, and share this podcast so we can reach more people with these stories. You can also take a screenshot of this episode on your phone and post it to your social media. Tag at 10,000 Knows and at Maddie Dell so we can thank you. If you want to be more connected to the 10,000 Knows tribe, merch, newsletter, episodes, etc., visit 10,000knows.com and sign up for our mailing list. And remember, in addition to the newsletter that comes every Monday, you can listen to short Monday morsels at the beginning of the week, longer interviews like this one every Friday. We'll be here. Have a great week, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.